Welcome to a history of the space race podcast. Episode 43, Centaur and Surveyor. On May 30th, 1966, NASA will launch Surveyor 1, which will become the first spacecraft in history to make a controlled soft landing on the moon. But just as critical was the Centaur rocket that had propelled Surveyor 1 all the way to the moon. Centaur was the world's first rocket to use liquid hydrogen as a rocket fuel. This key breakthrough in rocket technology paved the way for the moon landing. Without it, the equipment needed to get the Apollo Lunar Excursion Module to the surface of the moon would have been twice as heavy. That would have made the moon landing a little bit more difficult. Today, I'm going to talk about how these two key pieces of technology Centaur and Surveyor came into being. I'm going to start with the Surveyor. The Surveyor program has its origins way back in 1959. If you'll recall from episode 4 when I talked about the formation of NASA back in 1959, NASA's newly acquired Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California wanted to become the preeminent facility for the development and launch of interplanetary probes. One of the programs that JPL proposed was the launch of unmanned probes to the moon for scientific exploration under the program name Surveyor. Later on, the Surveyor program will become synonymous for the Surveyor probes that are designed to make a controlled soft landing on the moon. But in 1959, the surveyor program that JPL proposed was much broader than this. Surveyor was an ambitious, open-ended lunar scientific exploration program. JPL proposed to launch not only a probe to soft land on the moon, but to launch lunar satellites and robotic rovers to explore the lunar surface thoroughly. In 1960, JPL, under the direction of NASA, established specific objectives for the Surveyor Program. JPL planned to use a common core, known as a spacecraft bus, for all the probes to be sent to the moon under the Surveyor Program. The common design could then be modified to carry out different types of missions such as an orbital mission or a landing mission. This approach of using a single common bus is similar to the approach that JPL took to the Ranger program. JPL decided that the first spacecraft would be designed to make a controlled soft landing on the surface of the moon. To build the Surveyor lander, 
JPL hired a contractor. This was not JPL's usual practice. Back when JPL worked for the U.S. Army before the formation of NASA, JPL had worked directly on its assignments. When the Ranger program began, JPL did not hire a contractor either and decided to work on building the probes itself. But the industry standard in aerospace was for government agencies to hire and manage contractors to do the actual work. And NASA wanted JPL to join the standard practice and hire a contractor. JPL was also suffering from a manpower shortage, and the engineers they did have were busy on the Ranger program. So, JPL agreed with NASA and hired a contractor for the Surveyor Lander. The contractor chosen was Hughes Aircraft Company, located in Los Angeles, California. The design of the Surveyor Lander ran into an immediate problem. The spacecraft had no launch vehicle to get into space. The lack of launch vehicles back in 1959 and 1960 was a general problem for NASA and really the entire United States. The lack of launch vehicles was how the Soviets were able to repeatedly beat the United States in weight and size of its Sputniks. The United States did have one intercontinental ballistic missile entering service around 1959. That was the Atlas rocket. But the Atlas by itself was not capable of launching any significant payload beyond low Earth orbit. To launch a spacecraft all the way to the moon's surface, NASA would need to add a second stage rocket on top of the Atlas. The second stage rocket would need to be lightweight and highly efficient. Enter the Centaur rocket program. The Centaur was first proposed in 1958 as a direct result of Sputnik the previous year. In November 1957, the Soviets had launched the whopping 1,100-pound Sputnik 2 into orbit. The best that the United States could counter with in January 1958 was the measly 30-pound Explorer 1. Centaur was proposed as a way to ensure American rocket lift capability would surpass the Soviets. The Centaur rocket proposed to achieve superior lift and rocket capability through one key innovation, the use of liquid hydrogen as a rocket fuel. The use of liquid hydrogen in a second stage rocket is ideal because hydrogen is both lightweight and burns most efficiently. That's because if you'll recall from basic physics, hydrogen is the lightest element on the periodic table. Because it is the lightest element, 
that means it also takes the least energy of any molecule to expel from the rocket engine in the exhaust to generate thrust, making hydrogen, molecule for molecule, the most efficient fuel. Liquid hydrogen is not an ideal fuel in all situations, however. Because the mass of hydrogen is so small, it actually generates less thrust for a rocket engine than another rocket fuel, such as liquid oxygen. So liquid hydrogen makes for a poor fuel in the first stage rocket, when you need a lot of thrust quickly to counter the Earth's gravity to get into space. But once in the vacuum of space, high thrust is no longer as critical, but fuel efficiency is. And this is where a rocket using liquid hydrogen can play an important role. Thus, the Centaur rocket was always envisioned as an upper stage rocket to be carried into space first by another rocket. The use of liquid hydrogen as a rocket fuel created a lot of engineering challenges. Liquid hydrogen is a cryogenic fuel. In other words, hydrogen needs to be kept at extremely cold temperatures to maintain a liquid state. Liquid oxygen is also a cryogenic fuel and was already widely in use. But liquid oxygen only had to be kept at minus 297 degrees Fahrenheit. Liquid hydrogen had to be kept at minus 423 degrees Fahrenheit. The liquid hydrogen fuel tanks would have to be well insulated against heat from other parts of the rocket and from the sun and radiation while in space because hydrogen also expands quickly when heated, the fuel tank will also need a valve to quickly release pressure and prevent an explosion if the rocket encountered momentary heating on the fuel tank. At the same time, the fuel tank had to be extremely well sealed. Because hydrogen is the smallest element, it will seep through the tank through the smallest seams and welds. Hydrogen will even bleed through the walls of any fuel tank made with lightweight metals. Although the bleeding through the tank walls will be slow, it does mean there are limits to how far the rocket can coast before it loses enough fuel to hamper mission objectives. Despite the engineering challenges, in 1958, the Department of Defense's Advanced Research Projects Agency, or ARPA, approved the development of Centaur. ARPA contracted development to Convair, a division of General Dynamics. ARPA planned to use the Centaur rocket in combination with the Atlas rocket as the first stage to launch the ADVENT satellite. The ADVENT satellite was to be a communications satellite placed into geosynchronous orbit.
getting to geosynchronous orbit about 35,000 kilometers above the Earth required far more lift capability than the United States had at the time. Shortly after approving the start of the Centaur program, ARPA transferred the rocket development to the newly founded NASA. But NASA did not immediately have any project to assign to the Centaur rocket. Centaur was a launch vehicle without a payload. In 1959, looking to give purpose to the Centaur rocket, Suggestions were made that Werner von Braun and his engineers at the Marshall Space Flight Center should incorporate the Centaur into their plans. At the time, von Braun was working on the new heavy-lift Saturn family of rockets, the rockets that had the aim of sending spacecraft and eventually men to the surface of the moon. The proposal was that von Braun adopt the Centaur as one of the upper stages of a Saturn rocket. Von Braun resisted. He preferred to use a more traditional rocket fuel, liquid oxygen, in the upper stages of the Saturn rockets. Von Braun also did not like the design of the Centaur. General Dynamics planned to use a pressure-stabilized structure for the Centaur rocket's fuel tanks. In other words, the fuel tanks would not have any structures or beams to give the tank strength. Instead, the pressure from the liquid hydrogen fuel itself would maintain the fuel tank's shape and strength by internal pressure. A similar approach had been taken on the Atlas rocket successfully to eliminate the weight of support beams from the rocket. But von Braun thought the pressure-stabilized structure was too risky and created too many other engineering problems. By December 1959, von Braun had become convinced that liquid hydrogen should be used as the fuel for the upper stages of Saturn rockets, but he was not convinced that those upper stages should include Centaur. Nevertheless, von Braun's agreement to use liquid hydrogen in the upper stages of the Saturn rockets now gave Centaur an important central task for NASA's eventual plans to land on the moon. Centaur would need to prove that liquid hydrogen was viable as a rocket fuel. Still, the Centaur rocket was in search of a payload. But then, of course, in 1960, JPL began to establish objectives for the Surveyor program. The first objective being to make a controlled soft landing on the moon's surface. Surveyor was now a spacecraft in search of a rocket. In 1961, NASA decided to marry these Centaur and Surveyor programs to meet each other's needs. The Centaur rocket program encountered four serious problems under NASA. One of these was technical and the other were all managerial. 
Starting with the technical problem, NASA required that the Centaur rocket engine have the ability to restart at least twice in space. A restart engine offered more opportunities for launch windows to the moon and opportunities for course corrections if needed. But engine restart in space also presents a lot of technical problems. For example, there was no information about how liquid hydrogen would behave in the fuel tank without gravity when the tank was only partially full. Some system might be needed to push the liquid hydrogen to the bottom of the tank to restart the engine. They would also need some way to keep the fuel tank insulated from the sun and radiation. Even if they could do that, as I mentioned, hydrogen will still bleed through the tank walls no matter what. So the question was how the leakage could be minimized to maintain use of the rocket. Then there were the managerial problems. The first managerial problem was that NASA wanted to build the Centaur rocket on the cheap. To keep costs down, General Dynamics had to use as many off-the-shelf components as possible. These components generally came from the Atlas rocket. But because of the unique properties of liquid hydrogen, some parts were not always sufficient. This had to be explained to NASA a number of times to justify development of certain new parts. The second managerial problem was a multitude of objectives for the Centaur rocket. At this point in 1961, Centaur had at least two objectives assigned to it. One was to lift JPL's surveyor probes. The second goal was to launch the Air Force's Advent satellite. As designed, Centaur was sufficient for surveyor. Surveyor was to weigh about 2,500 pounds. Centaur was designed to lift about 27 to 2,800 pounds. But the Air Force modified the weight of the Advent satellite and requested that Centaur's lift capability be increased as a result. This now meant that NASA, or rather the contractor General Dynamics, had to make improvements that NASA did not need, but the Air Force did. The third managerial problem was much more serious. NASA headquarters made Von Braun and the Marshall Space Flight Center responsible for overseeing General Dynamics and the Centaur rocket's development. Von Braun, however, did not give the Centaur program much attention. He did not like the rocket's design, particularly the reliance on pressure-stabilized fuel tanks. At the same time, getting up to speed on the Centaur program would take a lot of effort. At this point, the program had already been underway for about two years under the previous direction of the Air Force. A number of key design decisions had already been made, 
and any new manager would need to get up to speed on all of those decisions to effectively manage the program. Von Braun and his engineers did not have that time. They already had their hands full working on the Saturn family of rockets. By March 1961, NASA headquarters grew impatient with Von Braun. NASA told Von Braun that the Centaur was a priority for the agency, but Von Braun insisted he was too busy with the Saturn rockets. NASA headquarters became so frustrated with Von Braun's management of Centaur that it took the unusual step of ordering Von Braun to give his personal attention to the program. In addition, Von Braun was to give monthly reports to headquarters in person. NASA headquarters had a hard time managing the Surveyor program as well. NASA had directed JPL to give priority to the Surveyor program, citing its importance to a manned moon landing effort. But JPL failed to assign sufficient manpower to cover Hughes Aircraft and its construction of the Surveyor probe. Part of this was due to the manpower shortage at JPL. The manpower that JPL did have was focused on the Ranger program, which, as I've covered before, was not going well in 1961. Then there was the fact that the Surveyor probe could not be finalized so long as the capabilities of its launch vehicle were not finalized. Case in point, in the spring of 1962, Von Braun's team at the Marshall Space Flight Center told JPL that the Centaur's lift would not be as powerful as anticipated. This meant that the Surveyor probe could not weigh more than 2,100 pounds, even though it had already been designed for 2,500 pounds. The necessity of cutting 400 pounds from Surveyor caused Hughes Aircraft to go back to the drawing board, increasing the cost of the Surveyor program. It also contributed to JPL telling NASA headquarters that it opposed the use of Centaur as the launch vehicle and would prefer to use something else. NASA headquarters, however, remained adamant about the use of Centaur. Despite Von Braun being ordered to personally oversee Centaur, the Centaur rocket program continued to slip. In September 1961, the prediction was that the earliest possible launch date for a Surveyor spacecraft was now late 1964. More likely, Centaur would not be ready for Surveyor until 1965, as there was almost bound to be some further problem during development. This led NASA to consider a stopgap project to launch unmanned probes to the moon using the existing Atlas Agena rockets. 
Though this rocket combination would not be able to launch a payload as heavy as the Atlas-Centaur combination, the Atlas-Agena might still be able to launch a lunar satellite probe. This will eventually lead to Project Orbiter, which will be the subject of the next episode. In October 1961, a Centaur rocket on top of an Atlas booster was finally erected at Cape Canaveral Launch Pad 36A for a test launch. But the actual launch became delayed by more than six months. The engineers had to deal with leaking liquid hydrogen and problems with the rocket's guidance system. As a result, it was not until May 8, 1962, that the Atlas-Centaur rocket combination, called the F-1, was finally launched. At first, the F-1 test launch went well. The Atlas missile successfully lifted off. There were congratulations on the ground. But then, 54 seconds into the mission, the missile exploded. Post-flight analysis showed that the cover protecting the insulation around the Centaur rocket's liquid hydrogen fuel tanks had ripped off during flight. This caused a loss of insulation and exposure of the liquid hydrogen fuel tanks to the heat of the atmosphere. The liquid hydrogen then expanded and the tank ruptured. The liquid hydrogen then spilled down the side of the rocket until it ignited, creating a fireball. The explosion of the Centaur rocket launched a congressional investigation. Perhaps the failure of the first attempt to use liquid hydrogen in a major rocket should not have been surprising. But the failure in May 1962 came at a terrible time. The United States was still behind the Soviets in terms of rocket lift capability. This was also when JPL was in the middle of the series of failures that was the early Ranger missions. The latest failure having just been Ranger 4 in late April 1962. With Congress finally starting to question NASA's rising budget, there were also questions about the necessity of the Centaur program. This was not helped when rumors reached Congress that the NASA engineers working on Apollo did not think the Surveyor program was necessary. In fact, given the difficulties with the Ranger program, the Apollo engineers were not expecting any data about the moon to inform their design of the Apollo lunar lander. During the congressional investigation that followed the failure of the F-1 Centaur rocket test, Von Braun freely admitted that he and his engineers had not been managing the Centaur program very closely. Von Braun stated that his team was already overworked with the Saturn rockets. On top of that, Von Braun 
fundamentally disagreed with some of the design decisions made for the Centaur before it was transferred to NASA. Most notably, the decision to use a pressure-stabilized structure like the Atlas rocket. Von Braun came out arguing that the Centaur should be cancelled altogether. In its place, he suggested the use of the Saturn C-1, combined with a second-stage Agena rocket instead. The Saturn C-1 was far more powerful than the Atlas rocket and would compensate for the less powerful Agena second stage in comparison to the Centaur. JPL supported Von Braun's position and the cancellation of Centaur. At this point, even President Kennedy considered canceling the Centaur program. In November 1962, Administrator James Webb and President Kennedy met to discuss appropriations for NASA. During that meeting, Administrator Webb defended the importance of the Centaur program to learn how to use liquid hydrogen as a rocket fuel before applying it to the upper stages of the Saturn V rocket needed for a moon landing. But there were also powerful advocates in favor of the Centaur. Even Jerome Wisner, the chairman of the President's Science Advisory Committee, who clashed with NASA on other decisions, including the decision for lunar orbital rendezvous, argued in favor of keeping both Centaur and Surveyor. As Wisner said, quote, we don't know a damn thing about the surface of the moon, and we're making the wildest guesses about how we're going to land on the moon, and we could get a terrible disaster from putting something down on the surface of the moon that's very different than what we think it is." End quote. Moreover, upon further consideration, Von Braun's proposal to use the Saturn C-1 and an Agena rocket instead of an Atlas-Centaur combination was unrealistic. At the time, the Saturn C-1 was still in design stages. In all likelihood, the rocket would not be ready to launch unmanned probes like Surveyor in time to assist the manned Apollo missions. Further, in defense of the Centaur program, one major problem identified during Congress's investigation was the failure to assign DX priority to the Centaur program. DX is a designation in the government's system for procurement of equipment. Any project with DX priority would basically be first in line for any requested equipment. The Mercury, Saturn, and Apollo programs had all been given DX priority. Centaur was not. This was despite the fact that Centaur and the taming of liquid hydrogen as a rocket fuel was a cornerstone to a manned moon landing effort. Congress uncovered that the lack of DX priority meant that compromises had been made in the design decisions for Centaur 
due to a lack of hardware. In the end, Congress did not cancel the Centaur program, despite Von Braun and JPL favoring cancellation. Congress did make clear its criticisms, including General Dynamics' decision to continue with a pressure-stabilized structure when Marshall Space Flight Center made clear it did not favor that approach. Congress also urged a final decision on whether Centaur should receive DX priority or not. In response to the congressional investigation, NASA took extreme steps to set the Centaur program back under proper management. In June 1962, NASA headquarters assigned a program manager at headquarters who would give the Centaur program his undivided attention. NASA headquarters then reassigned the Centaur program from Werner von Braun in the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama to Abbe Silverstein in the Lewis Flight Center in Ohio. The reassignment to Abbe Silverstein was exactly what the Centaur program needed. Silverstein used to work at NASA's predecessor, NACA. He transitioned to NASA along with other senior officials, such as Deputy Administrator Hugh Dryden. Silverstein also used to work at NASA headquarters under NASA's first administrator, Keith Glennon. After James Webb became administrator, Silverstein was sidelined. Silverstein had a rather authoritarian management style, and he was quick to anger. Apparently, Webb and Silverstein did not get along very well. Silverstein eventually agreed to accept the directorship of a field center, the Lewis Flight Research Center. Although Silverstein's authoritarian management style alienated him from headquarters, this style of management will save Centaur. The Lewis Flight Research Center was not necessarily an obvious choice for handling Centaur. Lewis was better known for its aircraft propulsion research rather than rocket propulsion. But critically, Lewis researchers had experience with liquid hydrogen. In the 1950s, they had experimented with the use of liquid hydrogen for the U-2 spy plane's engines when flying at high altitudes. This provided Lewis engineers with critical background experience on liquid hydrogen. The reassignment to Lewis was also seen as a major rebuke to von Braun and the Marshall Space Flight Center. This was a warning for the field centers not to back out of major development programs that NASA headquarters had asked for. Under Silverstein's direction, the Lewis Flight Research Center made three critical decisions that turned the Centaur program around in what was essentially a reprogramming of the entire effort. First, 
Silverstein decided to eliminate the engine restart requirement for the first version of the Centaur rocket. The initial Centaur rocket would not need to restart its engine in the vacuum and microgravity environment of outer space. Instead, the Centaur would burn all of its fuel in a single direct ascent to the moon. This greatly simplified the rocket by eliminating the need for special equipment to ensure that the liquid hydrogen settled at the bottom of the tank before restarting the engine. It also eliminated the concern about liquid hydrogen leakage while the rocket was coasting. The inability to restart the engine did reduce the number of available launch windows to send Surveyor to the moon. But Silverstein was fortunate that the moon happened to be in a part of an 18-year cycle around the Earth that made direct ascent possible. The second major decision that Silverstein made was to finally resolve, once and for all, the payload that Centaur would be able to carry to the moon. Until now, the constant revisions of the Centaur's weightlift capability in a steadily downward direction had hampered JPL's efforts to complete the Surveyor probe. Lewis engineers estimated that using a single direct ascent burn, the Centaur would be able to lift a 2,300-pound Surveyor probe to the moon. To further help JPL and Hughes aircraft, Lewis provided JPL and Hughes with a regular performance summary update. The Lewis report became known as the HORSE after the Centaur program. The report was so useful that JPL had Hughes Aircraft prepare a similar regular report on the Surveyor probe. This report was called the Pony or the Rider since Surveyor would be on the Centaur. Finally, under Silverstein, the Centaur rocket underwent test after test after test. This resolved a lot of serious problems before the next flight test of the rocket. One particular focus was addressing the leak of liquid hydrogen from fuel tanks. Testing revealed that the coldness of liquid hydrogen made the metal in the fuel tank brittle. Lewis addressed this by adding nickel to the alloy. Lewis also developed new welding techniques to ensure that all seams were closed, and then x-rayed each weld to identify any imperfections. Testing also resulted in new techniques for loading liquid hydrogen into fuel tanks. Lewis engineers placed a camera inside one of the liquid hydrogen fuel tanks. When they began fueling, they saw that the fuel tank actually wrinkled. The engineers realized that the coldness of liquid hydrogen had caused the metal to experience cryoshock. To prevent the metal from wrinkling and weakening its structural integrity, Lewis learned to acclimate the metal 
by loading the liquid oxygen tanks first and then slowly fueling the liquid hydrogen. Lewis passed these types of key information about the use of liquid hydrogen to Rocketdyne and the Douglas Aircraft Corporation, the contractors who were working on the upper stages of the Saturn V moon rocket that would also use liquid hydrogen. In November 1963, after about 18 months of reprogramming under Lewis' supervision, the Centaur rocket was ready for a second launch attempt. Another Centaur rocket was set up on top of an Atlas booster at Cape Canaveral. In advance of the launch, President Kennedy paid a visit to the site. Kennedy then went to Dallas, Texas, where he was assassinated. The launch team at Cape Canaveral were given one day off to mourn the president, but then it was back to work. On November 27, 1963, the Atlas Centaur II successfully lifted off from Cape Canaveral. The Atlas rocket lifted the Centaur 150 miles into space. Then the Centaur rocket fired proving that a second-stage rocket engine fueled by liquid hydrogen could work. The importance of the success of the Atlas Centaur II test and the taming of liquid hydrogen rocket fuel cannot be understated. Without proof that a liquid hydrogen rocket could work, the moon landing would have been very difficult to accomplish. The taming of liquid hydrogen will also go on to be a key part of the U.S. space shuttle program. And due to its unique properties offering the highest specific impulse of any rocket fuel, liquid hydrogen will likely play some role in a future manned mission to Mars. Indeed, the taming of liquid hydrogen is one of the chief reasons for the United States' eventual dominance in space over the Soviet Union. The Soviets would not even attempt a liquid hydrogen-fueled rocket until the 1980s. The Centaur rocket was now looking like a success and would soon be qualified for a mission to the moon. But now the Surveyor program was the one falling behind schedule. Surveyor had earned a reputation for being a horribly ill-managed program, and one that JPL failed to give proper attention to, despite NASA headquarters' demands that JPL give priority to Surveyor. In 1964, the problems with the Surveyor program grew so serious that NASA headquarters ordered a review. If you will recall from episode 28, in January 1964, JPL had launched Ranger 6. Ranger 6 became JPL's sixth straight failure when it crashed on the surface of the moon without turning on its television cameras. 
that resulted in NASA headquarters establishing a review board that was highly critical of JPL. So NASA headquarters' decision to establish yet another review into JPL's surveyor program helped to strain already very strained relations between headquarters and JPL at this time. A major critique of the surveyor program was that JPL had entered into a cost-plus fee contract with Hughes Aircraft. As I've mentioned before, a cost-plus fee contract means Hughes earns a fee on top of whatever the cost of the surveyor program is upon delivery. This type of contract fell out of favor over time because there was no incentive for the contractor to control costs. And in this case, JPL kept making changes to the surveyor probe. These changes racked up the costs, but Hughes had no reason to push back on the changes, since they would be paid the same way either way. The NASA headquarters review also found serious technical problems with the reliability of surveyors' guidance systems and maneuvering thrusters. NASA headquarters' review of the surveyor program in 1964 resulted in one major change to the surveyor program. Going forward, surveyor would act only as a program in support of the Apollo program. Gone now were JPL's original open-ended plans for scientific exploration of the lunar surface and lunar satellites. Surveyor now was only going to determine whether a soft landing on the moon's surface was possible and provide images from the moon's surface to help identify potential landing sites for Apollo. Despite what was clearly a reprimand from NASA headquarters, JPL continued to attack the Centaur program, despite headquarters making it clear that the Centaur program was here to stay. JPL's opportunity to complain about the Centaur program came on March 2, 1965. Following the successful launch of Atlas Centaur 2 back in November 1963, the Lewis Flight Research Center was continuing flight testing to further develop the Centaur rocket, including by launching versions of the Centaur that had an engine restart capability. On March 2, 1965, however, during the test launch of Atlas Centaur 5, the rocket only managed to fly about five feet off the ground before it fell back to the Earth in a massive explosion. The failure had absolutely nothing to do with the Centaur rocket. The Atlas booster was what had failed in this case. Nevertheless, with the Centaur program's bad history, critics came out of the woodwork to attack the Centaur program once more, including JPL. JPL now argued that the Air Force's 
Titan III rocket should be used to launch the Surveyor probe instead. JPL, of course, failed to acknowledge that their opinion carried very little weight, since their Surveyor probe was nowhere near ready to fly anyways. Subsequently successful Atlas Centaur test launches re-established the reliability of the Centaur rocket, including a version that could coast in space and have an engine restart. On February 3rd, 1966, the Soviets beat the United States to a soft landing on the moon. As I mentioned a couple episodes ago, Luna 9 survived a rather rough landing on the surface of the moon, and beamed images back from the lunar surface to Earth, where the British published the images before the Soviet Union. By the end of May 1966, the first Surveyor probe was finally ready to launch after many years of delay. The Surveyor probe ultimately was basically a tripod made of aluminum tubing. A number of attachments provided mounting surfaces for power, equipment, communication, engines, and payloads. Three hinged landing legs were at the lower corners of the tripod with shock absorbers for landing on the moon. JPL and NASA did not expect success for Surveyor 1. JPL had made many last-minute changes to Surveyor 1, which increased the risk of something going wrong. Moreover, JPL had taken seven shots at the moon with the Ranger probe before finally getting one mission right. So as Surveyor 1 readied for launch, Predictions were that there was maybe a 1 in 10 chance of success, and in the press, JPL tried to set expectations by describing Surveyor 1 as more of an equipment test mission than an attempt at a lunar landing. On May 30, 1966, the Atlas Centaur 10 launch took place lifting Surveyor 1 into space. After reaching space, control of the spacecraft was transferred from flight in Cape Canaveral to JPL's control center in Pasadena, California. From there, Surveyor 1 was monitored during its four-day journey to the moon. The launch had gone so perfectly that there was only one minor course correction needed. Actually, the course correction was needed because the Centaur rocket had been too accurate. JPL had reserved extra fuel on Surveyor 1, anticipating that some course correction would be needed. But the Centaur had been so on point that no course correction was needed at all. But now, Surveyor 1 was carrying extra fuel that needed to be disposed of. So, JPL made a quote-unquote course correction to expend the excess fuel. 
As Surveyor 1 approached the moon, the spacecraft performance continued to be flawless. On approach to the moon, braking rockets fired, slowing Surveyor 1 down from 6,000 miles an hour to just 3.5 miles an hour. At just 14 feet above the lunar surface, the engines cut out, and Surveyor 1 came down on the moon. The spacecraft bounced once, leaving an indentation on the ground before finally settling down. And there it was, in defiance of everyone's expectations, on June 2nd, 1966, NASA succeeded in the first attempt at a soft landing on the moon in the Ocean of Storms. Although the Soviets had beat the United States to the first soft landing with Luna 9, the performance of Surveyor 1 was far superior. For one thing, Luna 9's landing is more accurately called a survivable landing, it had been designed as a sphere with a collapsible material to cushion the impact upon landing. Surveyor 1, on the other hand, was the first controlled soft landing on the moon. Moreover, while Luna 9 had sent back a few images of the moon's surface, Surveyor 1 sent back thousands that NASA pieced together in a panoramic view. Included within the photos were clear images of indentations on the lunar surface when Surveyor 1 had bounced before settling down. This was clear proof that the surface of the moon was not a sponge or quicksand, the Apollo lunar lander could survive a landing on the moon's surface. In the end, the Surveyor program will launch a total of seven probes, five of which will successfully land on the moon's surface. Surveyor 2, launched on September 30, 1966, will crash into the lunar surface after its engine failed to ignite for a mid-course correction. Surveyor 3, launched on April 17, 1967, will successfully land on the moon's surface. Surveyor 3 will become the most famous of the Surveyor probes after using a scoop to sample the moon's surface, and then being visited by Apollo 12 astronauts a few years later in the first lunar surface rendezvous ever. Surveyor 4, launched on July 14, 1967, exploded shortly after landing. Surveyor 5, launched on September 8, 1967, landed in the Sea of Tranquility, where Apollo 11 will land later. Surveyor 6, launched on November 7, 1967, will land in Middle Bay. Surveyor 6 made history after restarting its engine on the lunar surface for a few seconds, 
and then coming back down to rest on the moon, making it the first liftoff ever from another celestial body. Surveyor 7 launched on January 7, 1968, and landed in Tycho Crater. The success of the Surveyor program marked the completion of two critical building blocks for the eventual manned landing on the moon under Apollo. The first was the success of the liquid hydrogen fueled Centaur rocket, which paved the way for the use of liquid hydrogen in the Saturn V moon rocket's upper stages. The second was the proof that a controlled soft landing on the surface of the moon was possible. Although Surveyor provided key information about the moon's surface, NASA still needed more information to select a site for the first lunar landing. To do this, NASA will need a more comprehensive review of the moon's surface, not just the immediate area around one of the Surveyor landing sites. This survey assignment will go to the Orbiter Project. More about that next time.